0: Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome back to a new series of podcasts. The media bill is already in the report stage in the House of Commons. We'll be looking into some of the issues in the coming weeks on what we think is lacking in terms of protecting important aspects of public service broadcasting. And there's a lot lacking. In the autumn, we spoke to Greg Childs from the Children's Media Foundation about his concern surrounding children's programming and it looks as though the Labour Party has been listening to Greg, judging by their response to the Bill in Parliament. Will the Government listen as well? There's also massive problems with subjects such as science and religion and ethics, with no specific mention of them in the Bill and no requirement on Ofcom to measure the hours of public service broadcasting. So, how will we know if the broadcasters are fulfilling their promises? I fear we will be seeing less public service programmes being broadcast and instead such programming as there is being tucked away on digital, where it will be inaccessible to a significant part of the audience. And more bad news. This week saw job losses announced by Channel 4 as advertising revenue has fallen off a cliff. The station is also cutting a number of previously commissioned series and there are more freelancers out of work than I can ever remember. I wonder if the boss of Channel 4 feels it is still appropriate for her to be paid almost £1.5 million when so many are being paid nothing. Well, on to this week's programme, which follows on from our last interview with former TV and Ofcom executive Stuart Purvis. We're taking stock of the imminent release of emails by the BBC which concern its handling of the Martin Bashir scandal. And how he secured an interview with Diana, Princess of Wales, in 1995. There's been quite a battle in the courts as the corporation attempts to withhold and redact some of the emails requested under the Freedom of Information Act by that very determined journalist and filmmaker, Andy Webb. Just as a reminder of the timeline, Princess Diana's panorama interview with Martin Bashir aired on the 20th of November, 1995. She was killed in a car crash in Paris almost two years later. In April 2007, Andy Webb, a former BBC television reporter, submitted a Freedom of Information request to the BBC for the files on the Bashir affair. He was told there were no documents on file. He tried again in July 2020. This time he was told uh, there'd been a mistake and some files were released to him in the October one of which incensed Lord Spencer, Princess Diana's brother, and ultimately led to the BBC announcing an independent inquiry into the affair which was conducted by the former Supreme Court judge, Lord Dyson. His report was published in May 2021. It established that the BBC knew, as far back as 1996, not long after the interview had been broadcast, that Martin Bashir had lied about the way he had obtained the interview and the fact that he had used false bank statements. In response to the report, the BBC said, We recognise that it has taken far too long to get to the truth. Well, who better to discuss the imminent release of what may prove to be some explosive and embarrassing emails than the investigative journalist who has instigated those Freedom of Information requests. Andy Webb, welcome to the podcast. Now, we're talking about events that started, what, nearly? Well, 28 years ago this year, when the interview was given. Why does it matter so much now?
1: Well, I think people make make up their own minds, I suppose, whether it does or not. I think it matters very, very much indeed, because we're not... I'm not interested in, or at least I'm not pursuing, uh, events that happened 28 years ago. It's not a question of, you know, what did the... forged bank statements look like and what Martin Bashir did or didn't say to the you know the chap he got to make them for him Matt Wiesler that's not what I'm interested in I'm interested in uh, what I uh, allege to be a cover-up which was instituted in 2020 but more to the point it is if indeed this cover-up exists, it's a cover-up that is being um, fostered very, very expensively at the, at the public expense in as much as the licence fee is public money. It is happening now. This is huge sums of money which are being spent now in order to prevent, in my view, the disclosure of these particular emails.
0: Have you any idea how much money we're talking about? I mean, there's very expensive barristers, I think, employed by the BBC in this case. So are we talking about tens of thousands, or do you think you might be going beyond that?
1: We are undoubtedly talking about more than tens of thousands. I mean, figures are important. We're both journalists. Figures, figures matter. I put in, an, well, I shouldn't laugh, but I put in an FOI.
0: A Freedom of Information quest, yeah
1: to determine how much the BBC had spent on external legal advice, external legal advice, not the, the teams of people already within the building. That figure came back, what, six months ago, a bit more? It was £75,000-plus then, then, and we have since had two more uh, hearings... We've had a lot of input from the uh, Blackstone Chambers, the, the very elite legal uh, practice in London. So I think it's pretty safe to say, Roger, that we are well, well over the hundred k mark, the hundred thousand pound mark. Now, work has been going on in, into this matter within the BBC for getting on for three years. Three years. Now, under the Freedom of Information Act, there is a, there is a calculation you can do because there as I'm sure you know you're allowed to refuse requests or, or you know, them back if they cost too much. So there is a calculation that you can price the work. Now, I say that in three years, if they've spent 100K plus just on their external counsel, they've got to have spent the same internally. And you get there very, very quickly to what, quarter of a million pounds? I suspect considerably more than that
0: well the big question obviously is why let's just briefly though go back to the story um and let's perhaps kill one or two canards if we can do it in that way i mean there's no question that princess diana wanted to give an interview to somebody was intent on it and she gave an interview with martin bashir so martin bashir deceived her in many ways but she wanted to give the interview and i think that's confirmed afterwards secondly The attempt by some people, and it is said it involves the royal princes, to draw a direct line between that interview and the death of their mother, some under two years later in a car crash in Paris, has no foundation as far as I can see at all. What we do know is that well before the interview with uh, Diana gave the BBC, she was talking to people in the press. She talked to Max Hastings, the editor of the Daily Telegraph, wanted him to do an interview with her. She was keen to get a story out, so the question was not... Uh, did she want to give an interview about why Martin Bashir got it? And we now know that he got it through deceit. So those are broadly, I think, agreed the facts.
1: So I'm Roger, Sorry, because I, obviously you're here to ask the questions, but I quite fundamentally disagree with both of your premises there. I don't know whether you want to get into that now or...
0: Oh, oh, well, let's do it. Let's do that then. I mean, take the question, I right. did Princess Diana want to give an interview to television. And there are enough evidence around and people on the record saying she did and that she gave tapes anyway to her biographer, effectively her biographer. So there's no question she wanted to give an interview. Are you saying, are you challenging that?
1: No, I wouldn't challenge the fact that uh, Diana w- was feeling very strongly that Prince Charles, as he was then, having you know spoken to Jonathan Dimbleby and given this coded confirmation of of adultery, that Princess Diana was feeling uh, rather incensed by that. And it was very much in her mind that she might damn well hit back. I think that is true. You mentioned Max Hastings. I I actually interviewed Max at length for the first documentary that we made. And Max um, told in great and very, very vivid detail how Diana came. They they had a a long evening session where Diana sort of unburdened herself and so on and so forth. It's very, very different, and you will know this, it's very, very different for somebody in the position that Princess Diana was in at that time to confidentially share her, her feelings, her thoughts, her fears with someone like Max Hastings, who, what did Max Hastings do with this incredible information? And the answer is nothing. He did nothing.
0: Uh, He says afterwards, he he was rather rueful about it, but before this, she'd given tapes. In order to help her biographer, so-called biographer, she's had it over tapes. And she told Jenny Bond, uh, or Jenny Bond says this two years after the interview, she didn't regret giving the interview at all.
1: But she also told her friend Rosa Monkton that she most certainly did regret it. So, again, I I think there's, there's, you know, it depends where you look there. The the point is, I wouldn't rule out the, the prospect that Diana wanted to find herself in front of a TV camera to have a say. You cannot, cannot dismiss the state of mind into which she had been put before she sat with Martin Bashir. Seven days before the interview was recorded, it's a, it's a document you may well have seen, Roger, but it, it was uh, Diana called a meeting at Kensington Palace with her solicitor, Lord Mishkon, Patrick Jefferson was there in the room, and two secretaries. It's the most extraordinary document I think I've, you know, one of them I've seen in a long career. Diana was convinced, convinced, that the problem in the marriage wasn't um, Camilla Parker-Bowles. No, that wasn't the problem. The problem was the nanny, Alexandra Leg Burke Tiggy. That was the problem. Diana had been convinced that Prince Charles had a plan to, if not kill, severely disable, certainly to try and bring about the death of both Diana and Camilla in order to clear the path for a relationship with Tiggy. She also told Lord Mishcon that she had been, I forget the exact words, but reliably informed that uh, Tiggy had had an abortion, and that she Diana would shortly be in receipt of a what she called a certificate to, uh, you know, to, 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 prove the, to prove that that had happened, that Prince Charles had paid for it and so on. So-
0: now, none of this, let us make it clear, none of this is true. Absolutely, none Very of it is true. Very clear, none of it is true. But that she believed it to be true is another matter. But another point I must put to you is that your friend, um, our friend, uh, actually Stuart Purvis, who was on our podcast not long ago, told us, I have personal eyewitness evidence because she, Princess Anna, once told me personally that she wanted to give an interview to Panorama. So that's what Stuart told. So let's, let's say that she wanted to get a story out, that she was deceived then by, um, by Martin Bashir. That, I think, let's agree on that. Can we agree that her death has nothing to do with this? Well,
1: again, all I can do... Let me talk about my sources. So Patrick Jefferson, who I have spoken to very, very much and, and very, you know, closely on this,
0: her press secretary for a considerable period, and her press secretary at that time, yeah.
1: Well, no, not pre- he was her, he was her personal not 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 press secretary, yes. sort of personal assistant, personal secretary, Sorry. very, very yeah. close to. Him. He organised everything, you know, the gatekeeper, etc., etc. So Patrick, uh, Earl Spencer, her brother, their thoughts and views do have to be taken into account. They do have to be taken into account. Who cares what royal commentators and journalists say and think about this ultimately? If her brother gives his considered view and somebody who was at her side for more than eight years gives their considered view, and their considered view is this, that having been, I say, absolutely hoaxed hoaxed into the position of sitting in that camera with her mind filled with the sort of material that we've already talked about. She then delivers this extraordinary uh, stuff and she's put herself in a very, very difficult position. Uh, you're, You're probably aware of this, that I think it was January, sort of two months after this interview goes out, she receives a letter from the Queen. She said the first letter she had ever received, ever received from the Queen, and this was the letter that effectively said that, you know what, I think it's time for a divorce. So, it is very credible to say that that interview led to the divorce. It certainly, certainly bolstered Diana's already pretty active uh, f- feelings that she was surrounded by people within the royal establishment that she could not trust. She, You know, security, no thank you, because these people are, what are they doing? They're just spying on me, they're reporting back, et cetera, et cetera. So, you then, 18 months later, find Diana, who is she with? Well, she's in the, in the security regime of, you know, Mr. Al-Fayed and his drunken driver and so on and so forth. I think it's not impossible to draw that line between Diana feeling she cannot trust anybody who's, who's around her. She's been told that her husband wants to kill her, and indeed Camilla, um, do, do you not see that there might be some some sense there that you're going to connect these to these events? Well, you could...
0: Let, let's, I think we should move on because I don't agree with a great deal of that. I think you're doing with some, dealing with a woman who was in a very difficult mental state, and I think that... that but hold on, but, but what I'm saying about that is that there are a lot of witnesses who say that she wanted to give an interview and say what she thought about these issues. Quite a number on the record. And Jenny Bond has gone on the record saying after the interview that Princess Diana said that she was you know, she wanted to give the interview. And indeed there's a handwritten letter the BBC received in strange circumstances from Princess Diana saying she was happy with giving the interview. So there's no question she was deceived by Martin Bashir. There's no question that he told her lies but they i think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that she wished to give the interview to somebody
1: Roger i, th- I fine i just think that to make the points in the way that you have is somewhat dangerous because it almost sounds like well, you know, maybe Bashir cut a few corners, but, you know, it would have happened anyway. And that is absolutely not the case.
0: First of all, I I wouldn't suggest that Martin just cut a few corners. I think he behaved disgracefully and deceitfully and disgustingly, actually. But let's move on from the question of why the interview took place. The way in which it was done was very intriguing because the director general himself, John Burt, was directly involved in this, took the decision when he heard about the interview uh, from the editor of Panorama, then Steve Hewlett, to go ahead with the interview, not to tell the chairman of the BBC, Duke Hussey, until the day or shortly before transmission. John Burt said, I think, because Duke Hussey was the husband of Lady Susan Hussey, who was uh, involved with um, a lady-in-waiting to the Queen, and therefore he would have put Duke Hussey in a very difficult position if he'd been told we know the result of that was an estrangement between the chairman of the bbc and the dg i think their relationship never recovered so that's the circumstance and then they find out that and the evidence starts to accumulate that martin has uh, martin Bashir has used deceit to put it politely to do this interview and there is an inquiry and that of course was looked at by uh Dyson uh, the judge in I think 2020 do you think there are major questions to be asked about that before we get on to the present day activity of the present BBC management are there still questions about the way the BBC behaved when it heard about what Martin Bashir had done that have not been properly answered
1: I, I do. I do, Roger. I think there are enormous questions. There. I mean, first of all, you raise the point about um, John Burt deciding not to tell Mamadouk Hussey. Frankly, for what it matters, I I find that perfectly, you know, perfectly understandable and, and legitimate, his chain of reasoning there. So that wouldn't raise any suspicions in my mind at all. Are there questions about the way the BBC behaved once um, they realised something was not quite right here? There was something, you know, nasty in the woodshed? Well, I think there are a huge raft of questions there, an enormous number of questions. The story, as told by... Tony Hall now.
0: Sorry, just Tony Hall at the time was the Director of News and Current Affairs. He later became Director General of the BBC.
1: Yeah. So the story that, as told by Tony Hall, Lord Hall, is this, that he had conducted his inquiry. He had become aware that Martin Bashir had lied repeatedly, that Martin Bashir had deployed these forgeries. Yet he did not, he did not pass on this critical, critical information to his... Superior, John Burt, the the Director General. It seems to me, Roger, imagine it, it's like an episode of um, Line of Duty, where the the DI has gone out and you know, if you like, solved the case. He's got the confession. He, he's he's pro, pro, proven that the, the the suspect had lied, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Comes back into police headquarters. He doesn't tell the superintendent. He doesn't tell him that. Now, that in itself sounds absolutely extraordinary because you know as well as I, what is absolutely second nature to anybody who's worked in the BBC? It's that thing called referring up. Referring up. You know, the benefits are you get the wisdom or the alleged wisdom of those above you, but you also cover your own backside because you're not the sole holder of this information. So Tony Hall didn't refer up the fact that Bashir had lied repeatedly and deployed his forgeries. Now that seems to me absolutely extraordinary. So Tony Hall doesn't tell John Burt, and John Burt, you will remember, appeared before the uh, House of Commons uh, Culture Committee and said on four occasions, on four occasions, that he was not told that Martin Bashir had lied. So John Burt has told that to the to the House of Commons. And John Burt, as we know, is, is a member of the legislature. So that, that's really very interesting.
0: So if John Burt had um, would be guilty then of perjury, if he if it was not true, and of course we've no reason to think it's not true, but if he'd done that on the record, it would be perjury, wouldn't it?
1: Yes, and I would qualify that to say if there were no reason to think it's not true, because, um, you know... So, but, OK, so Tony Holt is not told... John Burt, the first <laughs> director general in this, he's not told John Burt that Bashir is a liar or, or using forgeries and so on and so forth. Do you know what? He doesn't tell another DG, and that DG is the one we now well, have to us Well, let's
0: leap 20 years and say, you know, after the Dyson Inquiry, or at the time of the Dyson Inquiry, the present director general has apologised to Princess Diana's brother And isn't that that? I mean, whatever's happened 20-odd years ago, and I don't think any more information is likely to come out, but it happened that length of time. Why do you think the present administration uh, is so keen to not to release to you and the rest of the world emails relating to this matter?
1: Well, um, I can... Talk on that as long as you like, Roger. I think, would it be sensible to actually say what these wretched emails are and what they're about and why they're important, Le- these 3,000 emails? I mean... Please do. Fine. L- let me try and keep this as simple as possible because it is very easy to get right into the weeds here. But this is what happened. In October of 2020, I had had just completed... A documentary pre-transmission. Uh, it was a documentary looking at these these very uncomfortable allegations about Martin Bashir. Forty-eight hours before that documentary was due to transmit on uh, Channel Four, ping in my inbox appear sixty-seven documents released by the BBC. Um, it came out of the blue. Sixty-seven documents arrived forty-eight hours before transmission of this of this documentary. One of those documents was absolutely critical inasmuch as much. it was a report from Tony Hall, written in 1996, presented to the BBC board, which said in plain terms that Earl Spencer, Diana's brother, had actually supplied, had supplied Martin Bashir with bank statements, that Bashir then went off and had things done to them for for reasons that are not explained. It pointed the finger straight at Earl Spencer, made a very serious allegation that Spencer had taken the private financial information of a third party, given it to this investigative journalist, and Bashir then went off and did something with it. Now, that was absolutely an extraordinary document to, to release, what did I do? We're forty-eight hours away from transmission of the programme. If what was said in this document was actually true, then the, the, the film would have had to be pulled because it would have had to be vastly remade. Because the villain of the piece, you know, who we assumed to be the villain of the piece, Martin she was no longer the villain of the piece. It was actually Earl Spencer. So. We've got 48 hours to go. What do I do with this document? I thought, well, there is only one thing you can do, and that is to put it before Earl Spencer, somebody who at that point in time I had had no contact with whatsoever, beyond, funnily enough... About fifteen years beforehand, uh, a thirty seconds at a book signing that uh, that he was at, and, and we said hello, and that was it. He he'd batted away requests for interview for this documentary. We didn't, we'd never met, never, never spoken, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I put this document to him and said, "Look, Earl Spencer, I've been sent this. What what do you say to this?" In an email, Secretary, the phone sort of rang about thirty minutes later, and we had a forty five minute phone call where he he was absolutely astonished, of course, first of all, that this was being said about him by the BBC, that this was something that had been said 25 years ago within the BBC to the good and the great on the BBC board, the bishops and the lords and the, you name it, you know, these sorts of people, that this allegation had been swimming around the BBC for 25 years, that Spencer had effectively stolen... You know, a bank statement, and giving it to him. He was absolutely gobsmacked. Now, from that point on, Sir Earl Spencer went into his cupboard, his archive, etc., etc., and dug up the contemporaneous notes, all the records which he had kept, all of them, concerning his dealings with Bashir, and from that, the, the rest, as it were, is history, because. It was when these things gained public currency that the BBC realised, ah, we've got a problem here. And they were absolutely bounced very, very reluctantly to appoint, you know, to... to, Well, we're going to have an inquiry and then they appoint Lord Dyson. But that is the situation. Sorry, I'm making this much longer than it should be.
0: No, but now we've we've got to a situation where the BBC has apologised for that. The Director-General has personally apologised to Earl Spencer... So what else is there that could be possibly lie in those emails that you want access to? W- why are you pursuing it? Why is the matter not closed now?
1: No, quite absolutely good question. And I, I said I didn't want to get into the weeds, and I think I've taken us straight into the weeds with this. OK, I am I – am, the BBC issues to me this document, this allegation about Earl Spencer – And it arrives 48 hours before the film. And that all sounds a bit odd. You're you're a journalist, Roger. Um, That's not what you do with freedom of information documents. You don't pump them out. The FOI, freedom of information, isn't an adjunct of the press office. That isn't how it works. Anyway, this document does arrive. As I say, I, I managed to bottom it out by talking with Earl Spencer. When the... Uh, Dyson Inquiry publishes, Lord Dyson also published a selection of key documents that had been brought to his attention. Now, one of these documents in particular was an eight-page memo written by a woman called Anne Sloman, who is somebody you you may have known from your time in the BBC, a senior BBC executive, who worked alongside Tony Hall in his 1996 inquiry. This eight-page memo absolutely fascinating document because it essentially gives you it's a timeline and it it walks you through the cover-up it actually describes how they prepared a sort of you know fake letters of reprimand so that the press would be misled it talks about Bashir's handwritten confession handwritten why handwritten because there was to be no electronic memory of this, no electronic signature of it.
0: Sorry, can not be very clear here? You are alleging, and you've mentioned specifically Anne Sloman, that there was a concerted cover up by the BBC of the events that really happened uh, in order to prevent a. in order to essentially prevent the public being aware of the truth.
1: Yes, that's exactly what I'm alleging. That's exactly what I'm alleging. That this evident It is quite clear that, well, it's quite clear from the BBC's response, its public response in 1996, that it was anxious that the truth did, did not emerge in its press statements about these documents that they knew to be forgeries, doc- documents that they knew had been presented in bad faith to Earl Spencer by Bashir. The BBC knew that this had happened, and at this particular time... There is even a letter in existence, a letter actually from John Burt to an MP at the time, a Labour MP, I forget his name, but this letter to the MP says I can absolutely guarantee that uh, these bank statements pay- played no part, direct or indirect, in the gaining of this interview.
0: But what are you trying now to find out? Uh, what, what may these emails that you have asked for, and which some of which will have to be disclosed in future, what are you looking
1: for? Absolutely. The emails that I have been asking for now for um, getting on for three years. I have asked to see the emails that explain how it is that document X, the allegation about uh, Earl Spencer was given to me, but document Y, the the eight page memo describing the cover up was not given to me. How is it that they've decided to give to Mr Webb this document, but we won't give him that document? So what I have asked to see, if you like, uh, Roger, is, you know, it's the wireless chatter that went on in Broadcasting House in the autumn of 2020 when these decisions were made. And there is a really important point to make here that at the point at which the BBC released their allegation about uh, Earl Spencer, this absolutely baseless claim about him providing Bashir with information, etc, etc. They said, do you know what, we have actually discovered a range of other documents, but we can't give them to you, we can't give them to you, and the reason we can't give them to you is that we would have to discuss them, first of all, with Martin Bashir. And it's a real nuisance, it's a real shame, but Martin Bashir is too ill to be consulted. That was the reason given for the retaining of, in particular, in particular, this eight-page memo that talks about the cover-up. Now, with a separate freedom of information request, I have established that during this exact period, exact period, when Martin Bashir was supposedly hors de combat, he is too ill to be consulted, there are 38 emails which give a, a very vivid account of almost daily contact with Bashir, both in email and phone calls. One of the emails in particular, you, you, you sort of couldn't make it up. It's an email where uh, the, uh, a very senior news executive, Richard Burgess, who's still at the BBC, Richard Burgess, is, is is emailing Martin to work out the, the wording of the press release which says that martin cannot be contacted yes
0: I mean, now it should be said. Sorry, brief. Ad, I have to put up some other points to you, uh, other sides of the argument. That there is no doubt that Martin Bashir has been seriously ill. The question of whether he was ill enough, uh, so ill that he couldn't uh, give evidence, is, of course, I think what he maintained. Others disagree. There was, however, he was ill at some point. But can I leap forward to then say what is the present situation today? You are expecting and the, uh, expecting some emails to be released. Are you confident now, as a result of particular legal hearings and so on, that you will get the emails you want, which will clarify this once and for all?
1: now there's a, there's a big question. Am I confident that I will get the emails I want once and for all? Um, no, I'm not. Why am I not? I, I have big question marks, really, over the BBC's handling of evidence. And I say that because it is a fact that... Um, The four key documents that um, one would have expected to be presented to Lord Dyson by the BBC were found to be, in the BBC's um, account of it, missing from the archives. So I think I have legitimate worries that, if you like, any real smoking gun might also have been eaten by the mice in, in the BBC basement. But in a broader sense, am I confident that I'll be allowed to see what I think exists there? Where we are at the moment, Roger, is this. The, the, the BBC have, have finally admitted that they possess 3,288 emails which popped up in the electronic search with, you know, keywords and, you know, author, who were they, who, you know, from and to, a key time period in keywords. 3,288 emails popped up. It, in an extraordinary way, the BBC now say that apart from 300 of them, which are to do with um, containing legal advice, uh, you know, um, which they say protected for that reason, they say that all the rest are irrelevant. They say they're irrelevant. They say, well, yes, they popped up under this keyword search and they were from the right people and it was the right time, but they're actually irrelevant. Um, Right, Okay. So the the tribunal has sort of batted that away and said, well, that's that's nonsense. That How does irrelevant stuff appear? So the BBC has been told that they have to present this stuff. What are they now do, doing with it? What they're doing is this. They, uh, two, three weeks ago, said, aha, uh-huh, okay, we can see that we've got to hand this over. Now, now that we've looked at it a lot more closely, we see that we have to apply a huge number of redactions to this material. We have to go through it and redact it all, all over the place. They're literally, as we speak now, working, they say, around the clock in order to prepare for this release. They're redacting.
0: In other words, that, by redacting, it means you know, wiping out um, names and other things that they feel that they shouldn't be there. So you're likely to re- get a piece of paper, if it's a piece of paper or an email, with large sections missing because the BBC has decided they should. it's not appropriate.
1: Yes, and they, they will say that it's not appropriate for a range of reasons. Under the Freedom of Information Act, there is a section, Section 40, which is to do with the retaining of personal information, which is actually rather a broad category because, you know, what is personal information? Is it personal information that I went into Sainsbury's and shoplifted a bottle of whiskey? Well, may, maybe it is. So the BBC is making redactions on all sorts of bases, I've done a back of an envelope calculation that if they redact these 3,000 emails, which is, by the way, 10,000 pages of data, because these emails aren't just a single page issue. We can expect about 10,000 pages of data if they redact them to the extent that they have redacted material that I've previously been sent. I can expect and this is, I think, quite an extraordinary figure. I can expect 52,000 redactions. 52,000 redactions within the body of emails that I will be sent. I will quickly add that the vast bulk of those will be knocking out things like e- full, complete email addresses, maybe phone numbers, etc., etc., which is legitimate. I accept that. But even so, to be presented with 10,000 pages of data containing maybe 50,000 Black blobs, which may be a word, they may be half a page, it may be a whole page. What do you do with that? How, how, how does one address that, given that this whole scandal? Really, I think it is absolutely fair to say it only emerged into the light of day with 11 words, 11 words in that extraordinary document that was given to me in in October of 2020, making allegations about El Spencer. That was a heavily redacted document. 11 key words were visible in it. And from that... Without those 11 words, Martin Bashir would still be quite happily editor of religion, not, not appearing very often, it has to be said, but he would be there. And uh...
0: Yes, he was re-employed after a period in America by the BBC, yeah. which is an interesting question itself, why and who agreed that. Uh, just finally, what, what, have you got a date when you expect these latest and, uh, according to you, very heavily redacted emails will plonk on your computer?
1: Yes, we do. We do have a date. Well, in fact, we have two dates. The tribunal, the judge has said to the BBC they must be handed over before the end of uh, Wednesday, January 24. I've said, fine, that's great. I've said to the BBC, I want to be absolutely clear that this information is presented in as clear a way as possible. And if they need an extra 48 hours to tidy it up and put numbers on it and you know it starts at number one and ends at number 3,288 then do that and so have another 48 hours so at the moment we're looking at um, January 26th as if you like on d-day or whatever receipt day for the, for this material
0: well Andy Webb I hope that uh, once it's you've received that material if indeed you do receive it and you've absorbed it you'll talk to us again thank you very much for talking to us now in this podcast you're welcome Remember, all our paid members will receive this podcast first, so if you want to hear it hot off the press, please do sign up now to patreon.com forward slash beebwatch. You'll also receive my blog every week, all of which costs only £1.99 a month, which may or may not be a bargain. I hope you think it is. Well, that's it for this week. And as you know, this podcast is presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it's produced by Kate Dixon. The sound is by Dave Kitto... And special thanks to Quingenti. It's a Good Egg production. Until next time, goodbye.